0: they say they say we should have known better than to fall so deep down deep down into this rabbit hole ready it's time again to venture down the rabbit hole into the world of cybersecurity you're plugged into the podcast for security leaders and practitioners with a business sense Prepare for unique interviews, insights, and practical advice that makes your job just a bit easier. And now, please welcome your guides on this adventure, James Jardine and the White Rabbit, Ruffaloos.
1: All right, folks, welcome back down the security rabbit hole to another Down the Security Rabbit Hole podcast. Across the way is my permanent podcast life partner, James.
2: Uh, across, way across the way. We're, we're, you're out of town this weekend, right? Or this I, week, I, I guess?
1: Yeah, I'm sitting recording this from
2: Denver. I thought you guys were Texas-based.
1: <laughs> uh, dude, I travel for work. Come on, you know what I do. <laughs> so we've got, we've got like multiple points in the country. You've got Florida. You've got Colorado. Uh, you've got Texas represented. Uh, Jennifer, say hello. Hi there. And Jennifer's with, uh, with armor from us.
3: I'm the director of channel sales at Armor, uh, joining today as a co-host, guest co-host, I guess.
1: Yeah, guest co-host. Uh, only because uh, you know, we, we figured we'd need, uh, we, we'd, we'd need some more voices on this one, uh, because uh, on the other side of that, Mike, is clear to the other side of the country, let's welcome Ann Johnson. Thank you. Uh, so where it's are you? To- where are you coming from today?
4: I am actually in Seattle, so I'm not too far from those of you that are in Denver. <laughs> Short
1: throw. Yeah, just uh, just we could walk. <laughs> you know, that'd be a great charity walk. Uh, walk across the country. Um, all right, so tell us a little bit about yourself, because I guess I don't. Maybe maybe not everybody knows who you are. Although I wonder who those people were. She's kind of a big deal. She's kind of a big deal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. In the, in the small world that is cybersecurity.
4: <laughs> so. Um, Ann Johnson. Let's see. I'm a corporate vice president at Microsoft. I lead our cybersecurity solutions group. Been in tech 30 years. I literally just celebrated my 30-year tech. I'm not quite sure if that makes me crazy or what that makes me. Um, But um, done a lot of different things. Been doing security exclusively since 2000, and I am really thrilled to join the podcast.
1: That's awesome. Well, uh, awesome having you on the show and. I like it when people say they've been doing, you know, security since roughly 99, 2000. That's pretty much when it became a thing, I think, right?
4: It is. I actually was in the, I did a lot of infrastructure work before that. I did networking and storage. And um, I was, you know, it's a funny story, so I'll tell it. When I was looking and said, you know, I want a new challenge, I was a customer carrying an RSA Secure ID token. And I just was fascinated by the way it worked. So I went and applied for a job at RSA Security, and they hired me.
1: And the rest is history?
4: Yeah, the rest has been history. I actually started in the industry, and you'll laugh. I started as a PKI specialist. I knew nothing about PKI.
1: That's okay. Nobody else does.
4: <laughs> I don't think anyone still does. So. I
1: was gonna, yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's PKI. I mean, nobody actually understands it. There's like four people in the world qualified to talk about it, and none of them want to.
4: <laughs> exactly. But it, you know, it underlies so much technology. That's the funniest part about it.
1: So we were uh, we were discussing kind of internally uh, before we uh, got you on, you know, kind of what we what we wanted to talk about uh, and what we wanted to have you on the show about, and, and you know, obviously lots of cool, fun corporate topics, yay. Um, but I, I I was scrolling through your Twitter timeline and I noticed a pin tweet you had that basically said, I want to start a conversation on mental health and cybersecurity professionals, uh, particularly incident responders and recovery folks who. Travel at a moment's notice. Uh, yeah, those are. I, I was there for a year, and that's about the only as long as I could do that. Um, way back in in the uh, annals of time, there. But um, mental health is something I, we've talked about. I mean, there's been entire you know B sides, DEF CON, Black Hat, uh, you know support groups and whatnot. What's your particular angle on the, on the mental health issue?
4: Yeah, so my particular angle is that just actually keying off of those things. I think it was Jack Daniels who wrote a pretty good um, or did a video on it actually not that long ago. But so I lead part of my um, organization is the global customer incident response team. So that's within my organization. And not just burnout because they do burn out, right? They're, they're away from their families. You know, one of the folks said to me, I'm traveling 200 nights a year right away from my family. It's not just that. I had noticed that we were starting to have people that literally have um, physical health problems, you know, coming by and saying, hey, I'm not allowed to travel because I have, you know, ulcers or my doctor's worried about my cholesterol or whatever it is, right? I need to be off the road for a period of time. So, you know, Having been around a long time, stress is so hard on the human body, right? It occurs to me that these folks are in such high-stress environments all of the time that not just the impact on their family, but the impact on their physical health and, of course, the impact on their mental health. And I don't think as an industry, I know there have been sessions on it. I know that people have talked about it. I don't think we're shining a light on it like we would with um, EMTs or police officers or firefighters. Um, and I recognize that we're not always in life Threatening situations, but we are in business impact situations. And some of those situations could, hopefully, not anytime in the foreseeable future, but could have life impact, right? So I just wondered the stress we're putting on these folks and how it's impacting them from a mental health standpoint. And as a community, do we need to step up and is talk about it more. You know, mental health can be such a stigma in the U.S. anyway, but do we need to, as a community, really recognize that these folks need to be treated differently, not just as tech professionals, but they need to be treated in many ways as first responders, and we need to regard them in that way. So that's where I was coming from.
3: You made a lot of great points there. I know I don't spend anywhere near 200 nights a year on the road. I probably had about 50, uh, 60, but it does get hard. It's hard to to take care of yourself, you know, physically, when you don't have, you know, your tribe around you, um, it's difficult to eat right, get enough sleep in strange beds, um, and I think it's even worse, uh, you know, in a situation of somebody who is a first responder uh, for incident response because they're also putting in a ton more hours and it's a super high stress situation. Um, you've made a lot of great points there, and I think it's it is interesting. Uh, I would have never framed it uh, in the same way as EMTs. Uh, but, or, you know, our police or fire, but it is, they technically are. I mean, they're the first ones on the scene. Um, they're not looking at necessarily, you know, physical um, horrors, but, you know, data horrors all exist as well.
1: Well, so the, the interesting part is I, I, I think I did this for a bit. I, I worked at GE for a while and uh, we had a rotating job who basically uh, got, to, got to do the uh, uh, IR, um, you know, forensics incidents uh, for a period of time and... All of us got to be uh, in positions where you had to go investigate and corporate investigations often turned into things that you could just, you could never unsee, unfortunately. Um, And you probably know what I'm talking about, but it's, it's, you know, getting uh, the late night call, it's getting the, uh, getting to the office, uh, you know, on a regular schedule Thursday morning and realizing the next time you're going to be home is probably sometime about that time next week. Uh, or having a bag constantly packed, ready to go, uh, it, it is it's hugely stressful. I mean, uh, w- there was a, um, I can't remember where it was now, Ann, but there was, a, there was a study that was done on the impact of being on airplanes constantly uh, to basically uh, migraines and headaches. Have you seen that one?
4: I have, and because, and I'll tell you, I'm a migraine sufferer anyway, and there was one, there were two years of my career, not that long ago, where I traveled over 300,000 miles. Oh, and I, yeah, so I actually paid a lot of attention to it, but it's all of those things, and it's the fact that, and I'll give you my own, you know, it's a point in time experience, but, so I lived through the RSA breach. I was an RSA employee at the time, and I had literally gone to our office, I lived in New York, and I had gone up to our office in Massachusetts for a meeting when it all happened, I then checked into a hotel and was there for two weeks and part of the recovery team. And as part of the recovery team, we were literally sleeping three hours in shifts. Um, and then back on trying to get our customers back online securely etc so just that two to three week period at the point in time for me I realized the impact on my health and not just physical health but mental health and everyone around me then you take that to someone who's done this for two or three years professionally and this is what they do and exactly what you say they may end up getting a call at 2 a.m. it's like you're always on you never can decompress because suddenly at 2 a.m. you get the call and you need to go to Latin America from Seattle or you need to go to some part of Europe or you just need to go to New York, it's a really high-stress field, and I don't think we've paid enough attention, and it was literally because of some health issues that came up with people on my team recently that it it caught my eye, and I said, this is something we just absolutely as an industry have to start paying more attention to and get more serious about.
1: James, you don't travel much,
4: do
2: you? I do my best not to travel at all. Uh, (laughs) uh, You know, I mean, I spent uh, a few years where I did the consulting traveling thing, and I mean, I, I felt it. I mean, I know for me personally, I started seeing a lot of like I would get very anxious, especially the flying part. I've never been a fan of flying anyway. Um, but, you know, the, the coming home part uh, started really getting to me when, you know, you're gone e- even for a week or even just a couple days. Uh, you know, as my kids started getting older, I, I just started getting really anxious, getting on the plane, getting ready to get home. It definitely builds and, you know, especially I think a lot of people, what we don't look at is a lot of the people that do so much traveling also typically work from home, like they're remote workers. So it's not like they're in an office to talk to other people and collaborate and and decompress a bunch of that stuff. Like I know for us, when we traveled, we were all remote. So if I wasn't on the road, I was at home by myself. You know, and it, it gave no outlet to talk about other things going on, which, you know, I think that kind of adds and, and compounds the issue as well.
4: Uh, I think it does, too. And that's really we could we could probably go pretty far with that. But, you know, as a society, everyone needs a support network. And I think it was Jennifer that said that. Right. You need your people. You need your tribe. And when you're traveling like that, it's hard to build your support network anyway, because you're regularly missing events, right? Your friends are going to dinner, there's a family birthday, whatever it is. But then if you also work from home, so w- when you are in town, you're not going to an office and having those water cooler conversations that are needed to help us keep, you know, psychological balance. I think it all adds up and I, I, I just think the burnout factor and these are highly qualified, highly talented people that are hard to staff, candidly. So, you know, just the pragmatic side of me says we have to take better care of them. And then the human side of me says we Absolutely, have to take better care of them.
1: Well, so I, I and I, I think um, if you've been a part of the industry long enough, that you, you've probably seen this yourself. But uh, you know, between myself and other friends that I know, uh, that the road life, you get to a point in a career where you have to sort of pick a desk job or, or or not, right? And some of us simply went went that road route, but it I've distro- watched travel destroy relationships, families, all kinds of things. Like friends that have had rock solid relationships two years into it like yeah we just couldn't do it anymore um and that is that's excruciatingly painful to watch friends go through that you know go through it yourself or whatever but it it is really that type of uh, environment that travel environment that, that that tears relationships apart too
4: yeah and then when you think you're traveling to a crisis event all the time, you're never you' you're going to a situation where people are high stress. you're not seeing you're walking into a company that's been breached and they have you know critical business systems they need to get online. So you know it's not that like you're traveling for any type of engagement that's going to be, fun or you're traveling for anything low key, you're literally traveling into a high stress situation and it just exacerbates the whole thing.
2: How many how many people get the question from from others outside of the industry or you know friends and family that don't travel where they're like, oh man, you went to Austin, that must have been awesome. You know, what'd you do there? It's like I saw the hotel on my work site.
1: Every you know, single I mean, week. The number yes, of places no I've
2: been to and I've never seen anything besides the airport, the hotel and the job site. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: I
3: do try to get the point of every trip I go on now, trying seeing something. Um, I had a trip a few weeks ago that I was on the East coast. I was also working with one of our partners in Singapore. So I was doing, you know, stuff from starting at 8am all the way until 10pm Eastern time. And there was one of the days I had like a 45 minute break and I literally walked out of the hotel and I'm like, I will walk for 20 minutes and hopefully I will see something. I was in Raleigh, North Carolina. I had no idea I was four blocks from like the uh, Capitol building. So I ended up, I had a great little historical walk about the city, but yeah, I purposely now make a point of, you know, even if all I can get is 45 minutes, go see something.
4: You have to, and I, I didn't, I wasn't good at that. And I was traveling around the world because I had a child. I was always in a hurry to get home, right? So I didn't book that extra day, or whatever. And I remember there were times when I was doing that kind of travel, I literally would wake up and not remember. What city I was in? Because every hotel room looks the same. I'd have Mm -hmm. to refresh myself. Where am I? Okay. Okay. Now I know where I am and what I'm supposed to be doing today. So the travel itself is really hard and then add that stressful job of an incident responder. And that's why I'm really going to focus on mental health um, this year and understanding the impact on the industry and then making some tangible recommendations of how we can do better.
1: So let's talk about that. What what do you think that we could do because this is you know like you look, look at the way firemen uh, you know fire staff kind of perform how they function they're 24 on 48 off usually right? So they're on but they take longer. We we I feel like in security we're not taken seriously enough uh, that it's that stressful that you know that that we'd get that kind of schedule. Do you think it, is that something that's an option? I think it's an option. I think so. My uh, my brother in law is a fireman
4: in the city of Chicago, so right right in the city, right. So, um, and I have a lot of perspective about that career and how they handle it. The thing for us is staffing, right? Because if I think about it, I would love to do that. By the way, I would love to say, okay, you're not on the travel team for you know two weeks. We we there are so many breaches. Unfortunately, our folks are like 120 percent utilized. For those of you that run you know professional services organizations, you have an idea of what that means. It means they're not taking vacations or holidays either, right? So I would love to get to the point as an industry where we, A, we take it that seriously to begin with, and B, we actually allow for those metrics to say we are going to allow downtime for these folks because they do need to decompress between engagements. The other thing I think is an interesting psychological element of folks on that team, though, is they get really antsy if they're home too long. (laughs) <laughs> it's a really interesting, you know, you have to balance it. They need time to decompress, but they don't want to sit on the bench too long. They want to be chasing that new thing because that's what, the, that's what they do, right? That's where they, that's where they attain their work value from. So you have to have balance. But I do think a recommendation. But I think the first thing, and you hit the nail on the head, we have to acknowledge it. We have to say this is a serious problem because until we acknowledge it, we can't fix it. And I think we're still at the, yeah, we're sort of dancing around the acknowledgement part of it. So what's it going to take? Um, well hopefully it doesn't take some bad event. I think it's just going to take shining a light and that's why as, as you said you know I, I have a fairly decent sized footprint in the industry so I felt that I had a moral responsibility to shine a light on it and I'm not going to let go of it. I tend to be a dog on a bone anyway when i get when i get my head around things so i'm not going to let go of it i'm going to just keep shining light on it and coming up and i think i said in you know one of the further tweets that coming up with a coherent and defensible position with recommendations that are tangible so i'm going to take some time to study it talk to some mental health professionals talk to more folks in the industry even outside of my own you know normal circle understand the problem and then really put something tangible in place that i'm hoping i can get the industry to
1: rally around that's a good approach. I mean, having having because uh, we I think what the industry community has really done so far is we, we've kept it largely within ourselves to kind of self police, self govern, and sort of self regulate. You know, say, hey, look, we feel like you're getting to that point where you're, you're kind of losing it. Take some time, uh, but that's largely internal. And I, I think the thing that you're doing that's different is getting the rest of the world to recognize it. I and mean, let's start with the companies that we work for, right? Yeah, and I'm unfortunately in a company that that takes
4: these types of things very seriously. I, ha- I have the the support of my organization to pursue a, an endeavor like this. And I wouldn't say everyone is in that type of environment. Different companies have different cultures, right? So, so the ability I have to shine a light on it. And you're right, the good there's good and bad about the security industry. The good is it's a little community where kind of everyone knows everyone. The bad is we tend to stay in our community. I think something like this needs to have a broader it needs to have a broader spotlight because our customers also need to understand and people that aren't security need to understand that there is impact on the folks that are helping them, right? The folks that are servicing them. And I just think that we need that type of recognition all up.
2: Do we have, uh, are there limitations or blockers to that with things, not not just the customers, but also, you know, like data breach notification and those things, right? you know, where you have very limited time frames to be able to announce certain things. And, you know, obviously with incident. Res- I mean, you have to come in and find out what's going on to be able to say what's happening. You know, is that causing more of an issue with this, you know, kind of blocking, helping solve some of that problem? Because, you know, great, the customer is willing to wait, but the state attorney's not.
4: Yeah. And I think that's so the whole um, the example of the fireman of giving people, you know, 24 on, 48 off. I don't. We have to get to the point where that's actually practical. Because if I ever talk to my peers who run the same types of organization I do, they have the same problem. A, they don't have enough, you know, super qualified people. They're always staffing, and B, they are fully utilized. So we do have to recognize there are some pragmatic things in the industry related to notifications. Also, not just notifications, but customers need to get their business systems back online. They can't be not operating their business or part of their business, right? So there is a, a really hard time element, and you. May that time element with the amount of people who are qualified to do these types of engagements and then you say, okay, but we need to give them some aspect of quality of life. It's a hard problem to solve, but I'm willing to dig in and think about creative ways we can
1: solve it. Is that a, is that a workforce issue, like a scale issue? Because we've been talking around, around in the industry about how there's a lack of workforce, right? We're always short on staff. We're always short on workforce. Um, I. This is a problem that I – it sounds really uh, – it, sound, it would be really convenient to say all we need is more people that will, solve it, that will solve it, right? We just give people a rest. I don't think that's the case though.
4: I don't think that's the case. It's, it's not just more people. It's more qualified people. But there's also that, you know, that whole budget issue you deal with internal to any company, right? You have certain metrics you have to achieve. So how do those metrics align to giving people rest, right? There, there's all those things. And then, But the occurrence of breaches, so, you know, and I, you know. I'm going to say this, and it's going to sound a little bit overly simplistic, but one of the biggest things we could do to solve it is to try to somehow decrease the number of breaches, right? Because then you have less need for these services.
1: I'm in. Let's go ahead and solve that.
4: Yeah, exactly. Um the, the challenge we have, and, and then the other thing I'll say though is automation plays a role here too, right? I think there are there are things we can do in tooling and automation and can some of this work be done? Can more of the work be done remotely? Those are the type of things I'm looking at for short-term wins, right? Can more of this work be done remotely? Um, how much tooling do we really have as an industry to do this work? Does somebody, does every time something happens does somebody actually need to fly on a plane? We're starting to do a little bit more of the analysis type work remotely And maybe the infrastructure recommendation architecture type work remotely. We're toying with those ideas, by the way, and and looking at models, and we've been piloting some different models of what we can and can't do remotely. There's there's privacy concerns on the part of customers. There's also a how much data do I want to leave my enterprise for a recovery after I've already been breached. So there, there are certain aspects that can't yet be done remotely, but I think there are aspects that can be done. And instead of saying, hey, every time there's a breach, I need to fly the five person team that each have their own specialist into a customer site. Maybe only two of those people actually need to go on site and three of them can do their work remotely. It's that type of
2: thing that I, think, that,
4: that I think is a short win.
2: Yeah. I'm glad you said that. Cause I was going to ask, you know, I, I mean, I don't do incident response, but you know, is there ways to, you know, go at the processes are being done. Then five people out, all five people have to go at the same time. You know, I mean, like I said, I don't do it. So I don't, this, but being able to go back and look at that and and try to figure out what can be automated, how we do incident response maybe can be manipulated to make it better so there is less travel. I know like with my work, right I mean pretty much everything I do I can do remote and I look for ways to be able to do that so that way I don't have to go anywhere. And then if you're lucky enough to actually be in Jacksonville, then I'll come on site. But, you know, I, I, try to, I try to keep it. I mean, I will travel out to clients if they really want it. But, you know, I try to keep that travel down because there's other ways of being able to do that. So being able to go back and analyze, hey, here's how our processes work. What can we switch around? I think that's a great perspective to look at. I'm curious, do you – because you guys do so much incident response – do you, have like, look at that and try to find out? You'd mentioned, you know, of course, one of the ways to help cut back on this is cut back on breaches. Do you do analysis? I mean, I know we get, like, the Verizon data breach reports to see, you know, and compare. Say, hey, here's the top thing. Like, this is the reason why everybody's getting breached or these are the top five reasons. And share that out and and try to push and say, look, I mean – You know, everybody's got their fundamentals and they've got their top 10 and, you know, the basics, whatever we want to call them. But is there something that you are seeing most often that's like, look, if you would just start doing some of this, we would we would definitely put a huge dent in this.
4: Yeah, so my global incident response team, so two things. One, we produce our own security intelligence report twice a year, but my global incident response team also has what they call proactive incident response, or they call it cause, that they will actually go into a customer's environment by contract once or twice a year to proactively take a look. But that all aside, there's four or five things that they come back to me, and you may or may not be surprised by what they are, and say if every customer was disciplined on these four or five things, we could probably reduce breaches substantially. Um, Because these are the commonalities. And believe it or not, it's not about necessarily buying new tech, right? It's about, do you use MFA? Do you enforce the policy? Is it configured properly? That's number one. Number two... Do you actually have a patch management program? And when I say that, I'm, I want to be really cautious. It doesn't mean that you have to patch every single system all the time because we know that people have supply chains and they have different systems that can always be patched. But if you can't patch them, are they quarantined? Is there appropriate network segmentation? Do you have the right controls in place? Do you know where your critical systems are and which ones need to be patched first? So it's a holistic program, not just a, hey, go patch everything, right, all the time. It's a holistic program. The third thing is you would be surprised at how many customers still have admin privilege at every desktop, at every endpoint in their environment. Your users don't need it. So again, have you taken a look at where you have privilege and elevated privilege at the actual endpoint because that that allows faster lateral movement, right? The more privilege you have at the endpoint, the more quickly you can move in the environment. Shared domain passwords. We hate shared domain passwords. We also hate shared domain passwords that are things like password with two dollar signs in the middle of it. Uh Um, And you would be surprised how frequently we still see that in enterprises. And the final thing are exceptions. As a matter of fact, they they cringe the minute they hear the word there was an exception. An executive wanted access to something and they didn't want to have to strongly authenticate. Um, We needed to put this service available outside the wall and outside our common controls because Contractor to be able to access it, and they don't have an identity in our system. Whatever the exception was, so those are the core things. So MF the patching program, looking at those point, making sure you're not sharing domain path, minimizing exceptions. They literally say if organizations were really, really good process and audit around those five things, they firmly believe we could reduce breaches.
1: You know, naturally. Well, so that, that, that's actually interesting because if, if we can dr- uh, dramatically reduce the number, uh, then we can dramatically potentially reduce the impact. And, and it, reducing the impact causes us to do hopefully maybe a little bit less travel. Um, I am curious though because you work for a company that uh, you know, creates a lot of the software that we depend on from an operating, pers- operating system to other tools – how much of that are you guys building in into you know the whole remote the remote assist, remote diagnosed remote triage? <sighs> We're doing a tremendous amount of
4: work um, and making investments. And and I'm not going to, you know, I'm not stating it as a buzzword, but we're doing a lot of work in automation, orchestration, automated remediation, as well as reducing vulnerabilities by using things like application fuzzing with AI. So even during the coding process, right, we can substantially reduce the vulnerabilities that are coded in. And I do think, and I'm blogging on it and I've talked about it, and I'm not, you know, I've been in the industry long enough that I don't buy into a lot of buzzwords but I do think AI is going to make the big difference here. It's going to allow us to be a lot more predictive to begin with. It's going to allow us to be a lot faster at scale, and it's going to allow us to be a lot more automated in response and saying that, okay, there is a vulnerability, We, but here are the five systems that you may not even realize have the most impact to you because we've reasoned over all the data at a global scale. So we're investing heavily in just the things you talked about, and we will continue to. And we do think there's going to be a really meaningful role as we learn to build models that are more effective, as we learn to reason over more data at global scale. There's going to be a meaningful role in AI and actually making the making the industry more automated because that's the other thing that's really neat. I talked about tooling. Automation is going to be really important because no matter what study you read, you see that we can't hire enough cybersecurity people, right? So we just need to automate as many of the tasks as we can and make sure sure that people have the confidence that they're being remediated when you do that automation, and that will allow us to actually dedicate the people we all have to more meaningful type tasks.
1: Hey, Ann, I'm, I'm kind of curious because um, I, 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 while you were talking, uh, I, I, it kind of hit me in the head a little bit about the, the difference between – because there's there's psychological difference between men and women, right? The way we handle stress differently. Is there? Have you noticed any marked differences in in that approach, like from a uh, mental health perspective, in guys that travel more or, or women that travel more? Um, is there any is there any discernible difference there? I'm not sure. I'd have enough data to
4: comment, considering that like only 11% of security is female, yeah, <laughs> but, <yeah>. um, <laughs> and I tend to be a robot, by the way. So I'm not a good I'm not a good sample size, but. Um, but no, I haven't noticed any meaningful difference, honestly. Um, and we do have we do have women on our team. I haven't noticed any meaningful difference between the the, um, the actual impact to the men versus the women on the team.
1: Interesting. Okay, uh, you know, I, this is something that it's going to keep coming back to us if we don't solve it because it, the the number of breaches that we've got isn't getting any any smaller. Um, you know, the the, num- the amount of travel we're expected to do isn't going to get any smaller. I mean, I you know, I. I I think I'm going to hit – I got a notification from uh, SPG uh, earlier this week or or maybe last week. I don't know. It's all kind of blending together. But like, hey, you're just a couple of nights from ambassador status. I'm like, oh my god. Have I really put that many nights in a hotel? It's August. (laughs) It's kind of nuts. Yeah, I think I hit diamond on my airline
4: um, in May or June. (laughs) <laughs> um, which, which is not my goal, by the way. I used to, when I when I was in New York, I was uh, I was on um, an airline where I hit their global service status every year. So that gives you an idea. So I don't, you know, right now we're not working effectively or efficiently. And I do think, as I said, automation, the ability to work remotely, what tasks can we actually do work remotely? I almost think, to tell you the truth, that that's more of a psychology thing. People want to see you if they're in times of crisis more than a tooling thing right now. And that's OK. But I think we do as an industry, you know, I joke even at microsoft right we have we have um we have a lot of collaboration tools let's take advantage of them so we're not always having in-person meetings um, i think it just needs to be a little more socially and business accepted too that you can do more work remotely and still be effective
3: yeah i think um there, i think companies it's a culture thing too when it comes to collaboration and um you know and being able to use those tools so that you don't have to travel um, I was working with a company last week that they, uh, everybody, all of their principals came out of the collaboration business, so they're used to operating their entire business via Skype or you know, ver- the various video conferencing tools that are available, um, and it was really eye-opening on how much we're not using it in our business, um, and I'm not running into it with a lot of my other partners that I engage with, so um, that's definitely you know, a, good, a good approach that we should look at.
1: What's so just really quick? What's really weird is I, now that you say that, Jennifer, I, I'm, I, I find myself to very much be an in person kind of you know. I, I'd like to have I think anything that you can do, and this may be just you know old school, but anything that I can do in ten minutes uh, in an in person meeting will take me forty five minutes to an hour in a video conference because you spend half the time getting the tech set up and. Then talking mm-hmm. over each other and then waiting for the. If you've not seen that, uh, uh, that YouTube video of how meetings go, um, the the, the, I, the conference call the in
3: the real conference life. The conference call, mm-hmm. yeah, in real life.
1: <laughs> right? That is what we live, some of us live through. And then you, you put on top of that a stressful situation where, I mean, I have been in ops jobs where it's three in the morning, the call started at 10, there's 74 people on the line, 24 have dropped off, you know, 18 have now joined. It, you're, you're on the 17th hour of a marathon call, the problem is still broken. The business isn't up. You're like, why can't we just make this work? And somebody goes, hold on, I'm going to try something and collectively, but he goes, no. And it's like, okay, what the heck? Why can't we just solve it? And it, that kind of stress, I think a lot of that is, I, I feel like a lot of that is from not seeing each other being remote, every, you know, remote hands on keyboards. Am I nuts? No, I think I was going to say it's generational because I'm a
4: solid member of Generation X, right? And my child is a solid member of Generation Z and thinks that. thinks that, you know, it's surgically attached, right? This is the digital native generation, and why can't, mom, why do you have to go here? Why can't you just call that person, or why can't you Skype them, or text them, or Snapchat them, or whatever it is, right? Um, so I was going to say it's a little bit generational. I do find the the millennials um, coming into the organization are actually much more collaboration-oriented, by the way, than my generation or the boomers are, right? So I think there's a little bit of a generational thing there, and I do think there's a lot of cult- company culture there.
1: Hmm. That's interesting. James, you're 100% remote for most of your customers. How does it how, do, how do you find that working? Uh, I mean, I love it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I mean it, it works well. I mean, we use different technologies, you know, for what we're doing. So, yeah, you know, if I'm doing testing, I don't, you know, we can do go-to meeting or something like that. If I'm doing training, we do go-to training. Um, you know, I've got different services I use for different tasks that we perform. Uh, you know, I've got a lot of clients that use Zoom. So if we want to do a meeting of some sort, we'll get on a Zoom call and they'll have, you know, the big screen in their office with, you know, everybody sitting around a boardroom table. I mean, it it works really well. And, you know, you mentioned that video of, you know, how meetings go. Uh, that typically doesn't go that way. But I find the reason most meetings go that way, like in the video, is, uh, you know, we're usually just not good at figuring out who needs to be in meetings. <laughs> you know, we, we, we invite I mean, you sit there and say 74 people on a call. Yeah, Uh, We need to go back and look at who needs to be on this call. I mean, I remember being in an office uh, when I worked for a company here in town, and there was something going on. We had malware starting to spread throughout the the environment. And, uh, you know, it didn't help that as users started hearing about it, they were like, oh, but I want to click it just to see what it does. Uh, You know, like that type of stuff. But, you know, they would open up these bridge lines, and they'd have 50 people on there, two of which were actually doing something and everybody else was just required to be on the bridge line, you know, for who knows what reason. You know, it, it, I think a lot of that stuff, it's less about collaboration and it's, it's more about our inability to understand how to collaborate good.
4: I agree. I think it's cultural. There's not much I can't do. You know, We use Teams internally, right? And I have a hub in my office. There's not much I can't do. With, with teams and a hub that I would actually need to do in person. But I completely agree that we probably invite too many people to meetings. Not everyone has a role. I see that when I go to customer meetings. You know, I'll show up at a customer meeting and there are like 10 people from my own organization in the meeting and five of them didn't speak. And I'm like, why are we here? (laughs) So I think that there's this need that everyone, you have to balance between keeping everyone involved and engaged, right? And actually getting your meetings to the point of being productive by making sure you have the right people in the room and you don't have a lot of extra people in the room. I couldn't agree more that that's it. I don't think it's a tooling problem anymore. I do think because the tools have become much more sophisticated than they were, you know, when you think about, you know, doing conference calls in the nineties, right? Or even, you know, 2005 or 2000. 2010, we've come a long way in tooling. I think it's more of a human behavior
2: thing at this point. I agree. And it's one of those things, too, that it depends on what you need to to meet on. You know, I mean, if it's something where we just need to get together for an hour meeting, if it even needs to be an hour, that doesn't make sense for somebody to travel across the country. We can get on some sort of collaboration platform and meet on that. And actually, one of the things I like when I do training, um, I actually prefer it remote than in person. Just because it's so much easier for everybody to, one, see the screen instead of seeing it up on a projector, and we can do some more of the interactive things that some of these training platforms have rather than a whiteboard trying to, here, let me write something out, you do something, you know, doing polls and doing different things like that, activities where you can work on stuff together. It's amazing what some of these tools do that we just haven't taken part in yet that, you know we. A lot of people just don't know it's there, but we can actually use it for really good advantages.
1: So as we're coming up on time here, because I know 35, 36 minutes has sort of blown by here, and I'm going to ask you kind of the, the, the quintessential wrap-up question. You know, what's, what, is, what are you looking – what are you telling people to look for in, in, in those colleagues that they're sitting next to that are like starting to get you know, the warning signs, right? Um, you know, that somebody's hitting that point where they need a mental break. Uh, They need to take some time away. Well, if there are folks that are comfortable verbalizing their concerns, you'll hear it. Hey,
4: my, my spouse is unhappy that I haven't been home. Oh, I missed another one of my, my kids' soccer games, right? Whatever it is, right? Um, so if there are folks that are comfortable verbalizing, you'll hear the little cues and those are – they start to build, right? But I look for changes of patterns of behavior in people, and I always have. Um, and those changes of patterns of p- behavior could be simple things like, oh, I noticed that somebody just suddenly updated their LinkedIn profile, right? Right. Um, Maybe this job is getting to be too much for them or, wow, um, you know, someone's suddenly taking more sick days or coming in late or and then just looking for that physical agitation. It's, it's about we're so as a human race, we tend to be a little bit self-absorbed. It's about actually being observant of your peers and noticing what's going on in the environment around you and then actually then being able to be comfortable enough to have a conversation with the person and just saying, hey, are you OK, right? Is there anything I can help you with?
2: What's, what's the fine line from, you know, especially when you have people that travel together, you know, others kind of observing the others, right? I mean, obviously, being at the leadership level, you're not on task with these people all the time. I mean, really, you rely on the other people that travel with that. You know, hey, how's John doing today? You know, is, is there something you're noticing about that? I mean, there's got to be some line where it's not, hey, I, I'm telling that you're doing something wrong, but... Hey, I've really noticed and on trips before, you know, somebody kind of having a breakdown from being on on the road so much or or being away. Something that upper level is not going to see. But us there, you know, we see it and maybe it's a small episode that lasts, you know, 30 minutes. But that may never get back to where it really needs to get. Right. But you don't want to be that, you know, oh, I'm spying on you tattling type thing. Is there a line there or?
4: Well, it's not coming back to tell me that someone has an issue. It's actually being enough of a, of a peer to them and asking them, are you okay? And then, you know, suggest referring to them, say, hey, we have resources. Like here we have, you know, at Microsoft we have MS Cares, right? We have resources available if you're not feeling okay. Or you can you can feel free to talk to leadership. I know folks are open. But I think the first thing is just developing enough rapport with your peers that you are. Because we, as our group, we do travel. Right. the teams tend to travel together. So, if someone's having a problem, a member of that team is probably pretty aware. Someone's aware, right? Um, and just being
1: comfortable enough to actually have the conversation with the person, not going back and just like telling someone else, right? So that's a good. I think that's a good place to end. I I, uh, I think this has been a very kind of helpful, insightful conversation for those of us that uh, that do travel a lot and. Those of, those of you that don't, um, you know, kind of t- – I guess it just reminds us to, to keep an eye on our friends and our, and our colleagues a little bit more closely so that uh, nobody gets to sort of suffer alone. Exactly, and that's the whole thing because remember, these tend to be a little bit of um,
4: lone ranger personalities anyway, right? Yeah. So just, just make it, – it's that whole make way to talk to you, you know, just make it comfortable for someone to open
1: up. All right. Well, thanks for being on the show, and This has been a lot of fun. Um, we Thank We'll get you. you back another time.
2: Folks, right, thanks for care. listening.
1: This has been another Down the Security Rabbit Hole podcast. We will see you on another time, another place. Ciao. Bye.
0: As we fade out on another Down the Security Rabbit Hole episode, we'd like to encourage you to chat with our hosts and guests using the Twitter hashtag pound DTSR. Please check out the show notes, catch up on any episodes you may have missed, and subscribe so you don't miss a future episode. Our website is whiterabbit.net, W-H-1-T-3-R-A-B-B-I-T.net. So on behalf of Rafal, James, for now it's goodbye. We'll see you soon on another Down the Security Rabbit Hole podcast.